Welcome to episode five of Bright Spark. In this podcast from Innovate UK, we're talking all about innovation in energy networks. We're looking at the huge challenges facing the energy sector on the way to net zero and how the Ofgem Strategic Innovation Fund, or SIF, is opening up big opportunities for energy networks and their partners who are ready to shake things up a bit. I'm Matt Hastings. This is the second of two episodes focused on the four round two challenges that the Strategic Innovation Fund is currently focusing on. We talked about two of those challenge areas last time, supporting a just energy transition and preparing for a net zero power system. And we've got two more for you right now, energy system resilience and robustness and accelerating decarbonisation of major demands. Coming up, we visit University College London, where Professor Liz Varga talks us through how net zero energy systems of the future need to be robust and resilient. You need to be using less materials. You need to be using local materials, local knowledge, local skills. That way you can prevent accidents more quickly because people have more familiarity and knowledge of the system. Isela Farmer is also in that chat. She's from Beamer the organisation that represents the energy system supply chain. The supply chain aspect to resilience is so often forgotten when we're talking about energy security. And I think we're in a different era now of quite unprecedented change in the way we manage our system and the amount of new infrastructure we need to deliver. We'll then head across London to City Hall to chat with Rick Curtis, who works on energy systems transition at the Greater London Authority. The focus there is decarbonising major energy demands. London's got several million buildings and ultimately we need to decarbonise them all by either switching out boilers for, for heat pumps or connecting them to a low carbon heat network. It's another busy episode with plenty to explore and take in. I'm looking forward to this one, not least because we are joined for the second time by my Innovate UK colleague, Manu Ravishanka. Manu, how are you doing? Hi, Matt. Great to be back again. I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm on good form. Thanks. Looking forward to this episode. Feels like an absolute cracker again, focusing on these two key challenges. Yeah, it's really good. As you say, it's 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 a great time to be talking about this. Just the world that we live in, these two topics have, have really risen up the agenda. It's really come up in the public consciousness, I feel like, the last few months. So it feels like a great time to be you know, opening up the hood on these topics and, and talking a little bit more about what SIF and other innovation opportunities there might be. So yeah, really looking forward to it. I completely agree. The reason we're back together for this episode is that this is really a follow-on from episode four. So for listeners, do go back in the Bright Spark podcast feed to listen to that one. These two really come as a pair. Before we jump into this episode, Matt, shall we first do a quick recap and overview? Sure thing. So similar to round one, the Strategic Innovation Fund has set four new challenges for round two. That's what we're going to really focus this year's funding on. And we arrived at these four challenges by talking to loads of people from right across the energy sector, over 150 in total, to identify the most pressing priorities. And Ofgem accepted our recommendation. So these are the areas that we want innovators and energy networks to target as they develop their ideas, bring in new partners and work collaboratively to find solutions. That's the most important part of all of this. How are we going to really solve these problems with innovative solutions that are going to deliver value to consumers? 
So Manu, what's your role in all of this? So I really see my role in this particular challenge setting phase, kind of three main areas, Matt. The first one really is to help identify innovation challenges that can mitigate barriers and really create opportunities to deliver net zero from an energy networks perspective. The second really is to identify key stakeholders in this process of identifying those challenges and really bring them into a process, give them a voice and listen to them about what issues and problems they face and how innovation can can help that out. And finally, I think it is to develop these challenges in a way that is aspirational, but still actionable to allow a diversity of ideas that have a real shot at creating impact. I think it's really interesting how no one individual or organization can solve net zero on their own. We have to work collaboratively and collectively to solve some of these huge challenges. And the work that you've been doing around fostering new types of partnerships, working with the networks and new innovators, not just within energy, but across other sectors too, to bring them in to focus on these specific problems has just been fantastic. And I think we're already starting to see the fruits of your labor in some really interesting discovery applications, which have already started to be submitted. Let's have a quick think about what last time looked like. And just to recap, we had supporting a just energy transition and preparing for a net zero power system in last episode. So that leaves energy system resilience and robustness and accelerating the decarbonisation of major demands for this episode. Talk us through what you've been up to, Manu, and what you've been finding out. Sure. Thanks, Matt. As we discussed, I think resilience and robustness is a really important and quite timely topic, I think, for the energy system. So before we delve into the details, maybe let's set out a few definitions for for the listeners. From a resilience perspective, it's really the time it takes for a system to recover after it's had an interruption or a disturbance, and then to then deliver from the energy system's perspective, power and gas to the customers. You know, systems do go down, that includes energy systems. And this can be due to mechanical or electrical faults, human faults, uh, weather events like flooding or lightning strikes. As the systems becomes more digital, there are also growing and emerging risks on the cyber front, you know, faults or something more malicious like uh, targeted cyber attacks. So that's really the resilience part of the challenge. Robustness is really the ability of a system to remain functioning under a disturbance. So it's you can almost think of it like an opposite of, of system vulnerability. It's how hardy the system really is. So as we know, the energy system is changing. You know, we have new sources of generation. We have different ways by which we are balancing the system. We are becoming more decentralized and more digitalized. And alongside this, the landscape of risks are also changing. We live in a in a climate that's more volatile. We live in a world where cyber attacks are more common, terrorism as well. And also the overall geopolitics of the kind of more volatile world that we live in. So in the context of all of this, we really need to better understand how resilience and robustness change as we introduce new technologies and new configurations and ensure we can take advantages of these new approaches to strengthen the system. And also, we need to do this cost-effectively whilst delivering a good consumer experience. That's really in the, in the heart of this, in this challenge. One of the beauties about the strategic innovation fund process is the ability to have new challenges every year that really reflect where consumer needs are and where broader system user needs are too. And especially, you know, with winter coming up fast, having that resilience and robustness is going to be 
ever critical. And given, like you say, the geopolitical environment at the moment, having a really focused effort on cybersecurity across the UK energy system will only make the UK more secure as we develop our net zero kind of value propositions moving forward. So I'm really excited about this episode. Looking forward to hearing more. So in a while, we look at some of the big hurdles that have to be cleared on the net zero journey, how to decarbonize major energy demands. But first, with energy system resilience in mind, I've been to another of the UK's top universities. So I'm here outside the Chadwick building in uh, University College London uh, on quite a beautiful autumn's day to speak to Professor Liz Varga and Isela Farmer of Bima. And there's going to be, I think, quite a fascinating discussion because these are two people with very different but important perspectives on energy system resilience and robustness and why it's really important for all of us to understand this to make the net zero transition as successful as possible. My name is Liz Varga. I'm Professor of Complex Systems at University College London. Both UCL and the Infrastructure Systems Institute that I um, lead are doing work on infrastructure resilience, particularly energy systems resilience. The the urban environment is especially relevant here for us uh, because we converge at a point where lots of networks come together. Uh, We have um, new networks trying to be created that um, conflict with the existing structures that are there. Um, and create barriers to um, innovations, particularly for net zero um, energy systems. And increasingly, we see people almost going alone on building system um, innovation for energy systems resilience, uh, so that buildings can become self-sufficient and sustainable. But even then, they, they require or want to connect to the grid. And those are the challenging crossover points. Because not only do they still need energy from the grid, they want to give energy back to the grid or sell it back as a commercial enterprise. So it feels like we're at the hub of resilience and robustness research. And I can see around me, there's a lot of screens with, with, with some of your kind of research and findings. Can you just talk us through what we're seeing and what they say? Yeah, sure. The, the paper that we're looking at now is um, called A Resilience Toolbox and Research Design for Black Sky Hazards to Power Grids. So obviously power grids are critical for the supply of energy. We had some case studies in here, some experience also of power grid failures, and we're seeing that happen more and more. The next article we can see here is about um, very recent work that we've developed with United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, which is on principles for resilient infrastructure. And we've identified six principles and 33 key actions The adoption of these uh, key actions will ensure that we have systems resilience generally and particularly energy systems resilience. Professor Liz Varga has quite kindly assembled a set of about, I think about 10 monitors that are kind of presenting in tandem some of the key research work she and her team have been undertaking in resilience and robustness. It's quite an interesting walkthrough to, to kind of all the great research that happens here. Now, you spend well, most of your working day thinking about resilience and robustness, but it's a topic that's not really well known in the energy sector. So I want to take us right back to, in the context of net zero transition, energy security, climate change, can you just unpack at a high level what these term means and why it matters in these contexts? 
So uh, traditionally, resilience is about recovery. So if you go back to the Latin meaning of resilience, it is on the recovery focus. Um, these days, and particularly with, with the Cabinet Office direction, we've included, they call it the five R's of resilience. And that includes also robustness and also reliability. So it puts this emphasis on maintenance. But the robustness aspect to it is very much about the preventing an, an attack to your system. So you can prevent, you can um, manage, you can contain a disruption, and then you can recover from a disruption. But then there's also this idea of continuously improving and learning and putting mechanisms into systems so that you can have early warning of potential hazards, so you can be prepared and stop the hazard interrupting the operation of the system. Um, so robustness is a really important aspect of resilience now. We also see that um, increasingly sustainability is now feeding into resilience. So no longer do we have these multiple objectives like, you know, you want to be sustainable, you want to be resilient, you want to be cheap. Everything is bundled under resilience because resilience is about the whole system operation. So in order to be resilient, you need to use things like green and blue infrastructure. You need to be using less materials. You need to be using local materials, local knowledge, local skills. That way you can uh, prevent accidents more quickly because people have more familiarity and knowledge of the system. And you can also recover because they're also the availability of the skills and the knowledge of the system. So it's about making solutions relevant to your context particularly these days with supply chain challenges and the whole um, production from the point of um, the source from the raw materials all the way to the end of life. We're seeing the whole idea of circular economy coming together with sustainability, but also coming together with the innovations that the supply chain can offer. So as they bring in their new ideas, new components, new um, mechanisms that will now have a contribution to net zero. So I think that is quite an interesting you know, 40,000 feet overview of resilience and robustness. And one of the interesting points that was picked up was supply chain and availability of resources. I think it's the perfect time to turn to Isela. So Isela, you represent the supply chain that really need to help deliver the transition to net zero. So from your and from your membership perspective, what does resilience and robustness mean for you? So Bima, we're the UK trade association representing manufacturers of um, energy technologies. We represent around 200 manufacturers from multinationals to, to SMEs. For us, we've seen in previous years, the supply chain aspect of resilience is so often forgotten when we're talking about energy security and delivery of energy system needs in the UK. It's, it's assumed you know, don't worry, the orders will be placed, the supply chain will deliver. And I think we're in a different era now of quite unprecedented change in the way we manage our system and the amount of new infrastructure we need to deliver that we have got to think about the supply chain and this holistic view that, that Liz presented there. We've done quite a lot of work in the last couple of years with the Energy Systems Catapult and our membership, the manufacturers, to try and understand at a detailed level what the requirements will be in terms of volume and, and demand on the supply chain to get to net zero by 2050. So effectively modelling the future energy system and looking at the um, demand that we will be placed on certain um, key products and technologies that we need to deliver on net zero. And that's really demonstrated to us the unprecedented scale of investment that will be required in in the supply chain 
it really is not business as usual for manufacturers. It's not business as usual for investors. And for that reason, we really need to take a different approach to working with governments and the rest of the industry to figure out how we plan for this deployment and we help the supply chain build up capacity. And I think it's worth noting as well that the UK aren't the only ones that are doing this and facing these challenges. This is a global problem. This is a global um, delivery and we'll be competing with other countries for demand on the supply chain. So that's really a, a very important factor when we're also looking at trying to develop this local supply of materials of skills that Liz mentioned, which is so important to us and to our members. You know, the UK need to be competitive in that global marketplace. We can't ignore the fact that, you know, these delivery challenges are with this backdrop at the moment of an energy crisis, which places the resilience of our energy system front and centre of minds of everybody. But also there are global geopolitical pressures that we are fully aware of that are impacting on supply chain delivery. You know, some components and materials we're finding the prices have gone up 30 times what they were um, a couple of years ago. And this this is a really important factor to consider. And for that reason, you know, you could argue the resilience of global supply chains is is lower than it was before. So we need to take action now to look at this longer term net zero investment that's needed and the innovation we need look at the supply chain pressures, which won't all be short term, they are likely to be to to last a few years or even shift global supply in a way we haven't seen before, and really start to try and tackle some of those issues. So from Beamer's perspective, we look at it from two angles. One is about this delivery aspect of the supply chain. And the other one is our members manufacturer the key technologies that Liz mentioned are key to integrating buildings of the grid and and enabling this new energy system functionality that we need for for net zero. So I want to pick up on that point a little bit. The energy system itself is in a state of flux. We're moving towards a new energy system that's going to have greater renewable energy generation. Um, There's going to be greater coupling between the sectors, something, Liz, that you picked up around you know, transport and energy and telecoms and water starting to connect more. And also the energy networks itself who are undergoing a fundamental transition in terms of being more digital and being more distributed. What do these mean for resilience and robustness? Is that something that we need to think about how this changing system is becoming more resilient? Or is that something that's going to happen kind of part and parcel of this transition? Maybe Liz, if I can start with you. Yeah, so it's a really interesting question because... um, With greater transparency, we can have a better understanding of what's happening at different scales in different sectors and even different subsectors, like modes for transport in rail and road, for example. But actually, with more transparency comes the greater risk of a disruption because you're increasing the amount of information that's out there for people who might deliberately want to create an interruption to um, services. It also um, means that we can... With with the information, we can make much more informed decisions. So there is this idea, digital, you mentioned, Manu, particularly with uh, data science and artificial intelligence, there is this ability to start using data science for automating decision-making, but we need that data 
to be still collaborating. And of course, organizations tend to control data sets. You need lots of non-disclosure agreements, and it becomes very difficult to operationalize things like that into practice. But with that, actually, we could probably have a, a more resilient system provided we've got that collaboration across organizations, across sectors, um, so that we can be better informed and have better decision-making, not fully automated, with the human in the loop somewhere, but at least some of the detailed information not being, say, publicly visible. Moving to Isela, what does the system look like in the future? What are our assumptions about how much the supply chain needs to scale up, particularly from an energy networks perspective? Could you talk us through some of the key findings of relevance to resilience and robustness? For a least cost approach to net zero by 2050, the amount of investment we need to bring forward pre-2035 is a lot more than we anticipated. So that ramp up in demand and volume on the supply chain is going to come much, much earlier. Really, we need to be looking at this right now as a matter of urgency. And I also thought good opportunity to come back to a point that Liz made earlier about sustainability and what resilience means. And sustainability of the, the products that go into the system is a key part of, of this resilience um, point. And we've been looking at this really carefully, stemming from the project we did with the Energy Systems Catapult. We've looked at this with our members a lot, and we're doing a lot of work with other parts of the industry to understand how we can create a market for more sustainable products that are installed on the energy system. I think we've already started to pick up some themes of where innovation activity might be required to move the you know, needle on resilience and robustness from an energy system and net zero perspective. What areas would you like to see more innovation from your own work and the evidence that you've gathered that could really move needle on resilience and robustness? The first thought that comes to mind is this idea of systems thinking. We need to think of wider than just the energy system or sub subsections of the energy system because we don't exist in isolation. The energy system is so connected to everything else. So systems thinking is absolutely critical. And with that, I think collaboration. So this idea of working together as partners, uh, joining up across organisations, across sectors. And we see this already, the, the Joint Board of Regulators. We already have that, that situation where we've got regulators talking to each other. And we need to do that at much more, um, at, at different scales for different um, solving different problems. Um, there's obviously the technical aspect. So we need to bring in more and sort of recent technical scientific ideas. So obviously we want to do things like, for example, um, data science, uh, some neural computing, um, some um, much faster nanotech sort of solutions that will help us make decisions more quickly or at least alert us to challenges that are going on. Uh, but we also need to understand the consequence of, consequences of those um, findings. So if we're detecting that, we can do the data science and detect there's something going on. Where's the analysis? Where's the modeling? Where's the theory creation? So we need to invest also in the, what's this telling us? And what should we do best for the long term so that we avoid making decisions now that are going to lead us on a track that we can't come off because we end up locked in, as we have done in the past, to fossil fuels? Greater collaboration, greater use of, of data and kind of digital technologies and kind of better decision support systems so that we don't lock ourselves into a high regret pathway in the system transition. Great. Uh, Isela, 
Well, coming back to my point around carbon reporting, I think there's a whole um, scheme of work we should be innovating around under procurement for net zero. We can't procure infrastructure and deliver it in the same way we've done it in the past. We need to do this at speed, at a speed we've probably never done it before. And we need to procure sustainable products as well. So I think that's a huge area of work. And and one I know there's already activity going on for, but I think um, uh, more needs to be done. And coming to the point around collaboration as well, I think this is absolutely vital. We have tried to make steps recently off of the back of the work we did with the Energy Systems Catapult to start to build some of that collaboration from a supply chain point of view. So on the 7th of September, we launched the Electricity Products Supply Chain Council with um, government sat around the table in listening capacity with the whole of the um, electricity supply chain to discuss some of the immediate issues in terms of supply chain pressures that we face, but also this longer term investment challenge for net zero to ensure we assess the resilience of our supply chain to deliver on these needs. And I think that's been a really crucial step forward. It's a level of collaboration we haven't had before as a supply chain and we're we're quite encouraged with where that's going. Great, sounds like a really great milestone so look forward to seeing what that delivers. That was great. Firstly, huge thanks to Professor Liz Vaga and to Bima Sisela Farmer. We've got two people who are really in the heart of understanding and analyzing system resilience and robustness and are so great to have been there to capture the discussion. Some of the key points that took away from that really interesting discussion was firstly, the importance of taking a systems approach to these problems. We live in a world where these systems are highly interconnected. So power, gas, internet, telecoms, water, etc. And it's really important to ensure that we take a holistic view to avoid unintended consequence. That is, we might strengthen telecoms, but weaken energy systems or vice versa, which from a societal perspective is, is one step forward and three steps back. So we should definitely take that into account. And the second really is implications for resilience, particularly from a supply chain's perspective, which was great to hear from Isela. You know, we have a huge mountain to climb in terms of getting these assets on the ground and, and, and also get the network development done. So we really need innovations around procurement and market signals to ensure resilience is really considered to avoid favoring short-term decisions because these are real long-term issues that we need to deal with. Recently this year, we've seen uh, Russia's attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, particularly around the power plants. And what's been, whilst it's chilling and heart-rendering on one level, from an energy system resilience perspective and a system interdependencies perspective, we're seeing the fact that once the electricity goes out, that obviously the water goes off too. Not everyone realizes that the amount of electricity required just to pump water around the system is so significant that if we lose electricity and water, then suddenly we're in a really difficult issue. If you combine then some of the potential for cybersecurity issues on top of that, then we've got really quite severe issues here. So understanding those dependencies and putting in place, I think, a wide variety of different solutions to deal with them, like you say, Manu, these complex systems is really where there's significant value for consumers. The other opportunity here, and I think this links back to our round one challenges around data and digitalization, is a fully digitalized energy system enables us to deal with these systemic complexities in a way that we couldn't historically with an analog system. 
So I'm looking forward to seeing the kinds of artificial intelligence and machine learning applications that we can utilize to manage that complexity in a way that keeps it simple for consumers and network users. So I'm excited to see this one moving forward. You completely agree with that. I think uh, the the kind of digitalization and, and, and system development really does offer opportunities for us to be more systems oriented and interconnected. So yeah, likewise, really look forward to where some of the round one SIF projects go with this, but also what we receive in terms of ideas going forward. Right, so there is one challenge area left to explore. We've called this one accelerating decarbonization of major demands. Do you want to help me set the scene for this one? What do we mean by major demands? So ultimately, what we're talking about here is electricity and gas demands on the system. So from a domestic perspective, everyone's very aware that we need to get to about 600,000 heat pumps and replace some of our gas-fired boilers over the course of the next few years. That's a massive increase in electricity demand. And when you overlay things like heat pumps with the increase in electric vehicles, where we're seeing, again, really significant uptick in the amount of connections that we're going to need for EVs moving forward. But that's just on the domestic side. When you start to increase include the industrial and commercial side and the business demands here, we can take those issues and expand them significantly. So for example, an awful lot of businesses have quite large fleets, you know, not just necessarily the service businesses who run around fixing those boilers, or indeed the networks and the water companies who are maintaining their infrastructure. But we're also starting to see large electric vehicle fleets operating across the logistics space, whether that's you know delivery services or food services or whatever it may be. So that layering of domestic demand plus industrial and commercial demand, and in, even as we move up into other spaces such as how we create kind of big, big industrial facilities, say, to incorporate things like hydrogen and some of the demands that we might need to process hydrogen on the system, we're talking about an exponential increase, not just in the physical size of the network, but in the intelligence and the innovation that we're going to require to manage those demands. So it's a particularly pertinent challenge. We also know that the time frame here is really, really important, you know, not just around the connection of new generation, which often makes the headlines in terms of the generation side and how long that can take. But we know that we're living in a growth economy and we want to stimulate a growth economy. And that means we want businesses to grow and to scale, which means they're going to need more electricity and potentially more gas so they can employ more people, create more jobs, and ultimately deliver the kind of GDP growth that we want to see. So that plus the kind of technical challenges that we're going to encounter moving forward really puts this challenge absolutely front and centre in the kinds of initiatives that we want to see. You are listening to the BrightSpark podcast from Innovate UK. To find out more about our work at the Strategic Innovation Fund, just head online to offgem.gov.uk forward slash SIF, S-I-F. We've also put that link in the description that accompanies this episode in your podcast player. Right, Next step from me is a short trip across London for the second part of this episode to the Crystal, a really striking building that is headquarters of the Greater London Authority. Hi, I'm Rick Curtis, the Strategy Markets and Innovation Lead in the Energy Systems Team at the GLA. We are in uh, East London in the Royal Docks at the Crystal Building, which was initially designed and built by Siemens in 2012 uh, with the goal of being the world's uh, sort of most sustainable building, as it were. The GLA bought the building in 2016, and now it's become uh, City Hall. 
That's amazing. Can't think of a better place to have this conversation. So I want to start with the net zero goals that London has set itself. You know, it is one of the most ambitious targets out there. So what does acceleration of decarbonization of demand such as kind of heat and transport, where does that sit within this context of, of the net zero goals that London have? Yeah, as you know, um, so, so our target in London is 2030, which is incredibly ambitious, as you say. And uh, the decarbonization of heat and transport are going to be absolutely key uh, to, to realizing that, both in terms of the size of the emissions they equate to, but also where the mayor's existing powers are um, to give us the levers to try and tackle them. So on the transport side, um, probably the more straightforward one, uh, the mayor's already doing a, a lot of work through uh, you know, a range of policies and infrastructure decisions. So on the policy side, you know, as an example, we've got the ultra low emission zone, um, which is trying to sort of uh, get rid of petrol and diesel vehicles and in ultimately encourage electric vehicles to take over. Um, I should say it's actually a separate policy where we're trying to minimize vehicles altogether, obviously, so encourage sort of um, journeys by foot or by cycle, which is obviously the best way to minimize congestion and emissions uh, up front. Um, but also, um, you know, the mayor has some control through, through TfL over, you know, London's public transport system. So there is a really, really ambitious bus decarbonisation or electrification uh, strategy in place. And I think I'm right in saying that the, the goal is for, or the expectation is that by the end of this year, 10% of London's buses will be electrified. And then through things like the EV infrastructure task force, you know, we're also seeing that the highest rate of EV charge points in the, you know, across the country are here in the city. So some great steps there already. But clearly a lot of those levers also sit with central government in terms of the right incentives to remove uh, petrol vehicles from 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 the road. So the mayor's doing what he can really uh, on the transport side. And then on the heat side, far more challenging for us right now, given the lack of, I guess, sort of a national framework and, and, and strategy for heat. London's got several mil million buildings and ultimately we need to decarbonize them all um, by either switching out boilers for, for heat pumps or connecting them to a low carbon heat network. Again, we've got some levers to do that. So the London plan's a really great example. Uh, and actually we've got the, you know, I think we've got the, um, we're the only city to have a net zero um, uh, emission um, building standards for, for homes and, and commercial developments. Uh, that's on the new development side. Um, you know, goes far further than the national um, targets. But um, again, when we start looking at the, the private sector, both from an energy efficiency perspective or a sort of heat decarbonisation perspective, clearly that's really, really challenging at the moment until we get a bit more investment, you know, and, and policy making um, from central government. That's um, really interesting, Rick. Thanks for setting the context in terms of kind of demand decarbonisation within the ambitious goals that you have. I want to talk about something that both of us have spoken about at length previously, which is how do we integrate all of this technology? As you know, the Strategic Innovation Fund looks at how best to enable the energy networks and system operator to move to net zero. And all of these technologies need to be integrated and, and kind of operated in, a, in an efficient way. What do you see are, are some of the integration challenges of demand decarbonization from this kind of wider system perspective? That's a really great question. One of the initial challenges, the obvious one for us, is how our accelerated ambition and target fits with some of the national timelines, particularly in, around allowing the regulatory and market reform needed for you know the investment case for a lot of these technologies to actually stack up. So, you know, to, to be clear, 
we're struggling at the moment to get some of these electrified assets in place, let alone think about integrating them. And you know, when we do think about integrating them, perhaps by building in flexibility, those business cases aren't stacking up yet. In terms of the, you know, the, the second point, I think, which is really important to make is this question of roles and responsibilities, which I think you're alluding to. So you know, right now, it's very, very difficult for um, you know, London to know where it needs to be deploying a lot of its generation demand assets. And ultimately, we're all committed towards a whole system um, decarbonisation because that's going to be the lowest cost and, and lowest carbon, or at least it should be. But in order to do that, there does need to be some more certainty on what that system looks like and whose responsibility it is to take up various parts. We at the GLA are increasingly exploring those types of conversations. One example is through local air energy planning. So we're working very closely with our with our DNOs, UKPN in particular, to understand um, what is needed to um, ensure that a London-wide, uh, I guess, sort of view of decarbonisation fits with a fits with the national system. Um, but also, what does a local view of decarbonisation look like at a London level? So, we have 33 boroughs across London. Uh, we also have TfL, and we have you know the Met, the Fire Brigade, and they will obviously all be decarbonising on their own patch. But at some stage, we need to look across those different levels and make sure that adds up to a really consistent picture at, at a London level. So is it fair to say getting these technologies in in the timelines is almost the first order priority and then the next is almost kind of integration challenge, flexibility and all of that kind of underpinned by clear rules and responsibilities between local and national actors? Yeah, I think you're right. I think in truth they need to happen in parallel. You know, we absolutely do need the investment cases for those technologies technologies to stack up. Right now, if you want to invest in, you know, electrification is a key lever for decarbonisation. But if you want to invest in, say, a heat pump or solar PV or, or a battery storage, the costs just don't stack up, largely because electricity prices are pegged to gas prices. And that absolutely has to change because we can't integrate anything if, if you haven't even got that electrified demand there. But you're absolutely right. Secondly, I think there's a really interesting discussion around around those roles and responsibilities, which I think we're only going to be do, you know, work out by learning by doing. But one thing I would say which is really important is, you know, the urgency to this. What we know is whether you're making an infrastructure decision or you're building in flexibility, you have to have that investment well ahead of need. You can't wait for the capacity to be there and then do it. So it really is critical that we have more dialogue with government and with Ofgem. Um, and they start to understand where is it that local and regional authorities are best placed to affect decarbonisation. And we believe that's on the ground. We don't think you can coordinate across power, buildings and transport on the ground in a centralised way. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, we need to work together to, to ultimately solve these challenges. I would like to pick up on a, on a specific point in terms of what you see as some of the integration challenges of decarbonizing you know, heat and transport and then using heat networks from an energy network and wider system perspective. As we've discussed, I think the first priority is for some of that demand to come forward, but then when it has, there is a really key question around how we integrate that into the network. You know, we, we've an issue at the moment in West London where essentially a, a housing pipeline um, you know, is having to be delayed because the, the grid um, you know, isn't quite ready um, for that new capacity to come online and the GLA has 
played an important role there in trying to broker those conversations between the DNOs and between National Grid and Ofgem. But as I understand it, that's an issue we're seeing, you know, across the wider, um, the wider country. To me, it points to this, you know, real, uh, it points to the importance of working closely with DNOs, having a really, really good pipeline of what is coming on, and then trying to either, you know, invest the head of need or ideally um, identify some flexibility opportunities and work collaboratively to, collaboratively to develop that pipeline of flexibility and you know, use that wherever possible to delay uh, any upgrades that are needed. But I think we're just at the start here and you know, particularly heat as a demand, it's you know, a lot of uncertainties as to where that's going to appear um, and how we're going to integrate that. But you know, what we do know is that as we electrify heat, we electrify transport, that's all going to add to the huge um, power peaks that we see at the moment. And, you know, I think it's a bit uncertain for everyone. I think this really reaffirms why we feel local authorities are a critical stakeholder in working with energy networks to, to deliver a strategic innovation fund. In, in kind of meeting these challenge, you know, what do you feel or rather where do you feel innovation can, 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 can play a role and what would you like to see more of? I think assuming we use a broad definition of, inf uh, of innovation um, that really is just about trying new uh, processes, approaches, ideas, I think we're going to need innovation across the board. Um, this is a really, really complex challenge of both integrating the technologies and integrating, as I've mentioned, across those you know, many different organisations and spatial scales. But I think the area I'd like to see more is collaborative innovation between some of the traditional energy system actors, so the likes of um, the regulator, the energy networks, the energy supply companies, and your non-traditional or your newer actors, so that's local and regional authorities, and also, um, you know, citizens, consumers. So I'd really like to see, you know, which obviously is what the, what the, the CIF is all about, greater collaboration between the networks and local and regional authorities at the outset. The other area I think we really need some innovation is around you know, how we engage consumers in this. Right now, consumers are often quite passive in the energy system and the emphasis is on providing um, protections to them um, and, and trying to give them choice, but really it's a bit of a false choice. There are very, very few you know, products and services available or even tariffs that enable them to become active agents in the country's decarbonisation and that really, really has to change. My feeling is that if the benefits are explained properly and their role is explained, then citizens would want to become much more involved um, in the energy system, not least because I think you know, they feel a little bit helpless right now. We hear a lot about trying to protect consumers from high bills as a result of fossil fuels, but the way to do that is not to subsidise new investment in fossil fuels, it's to create the framework and conditions for new products and services that ultimately consumers can choose to opt into and therefore play an active role in decarbonisation. Thank you so much to Rick Curtis for taking the time to chat. It was so good to hear Rick's perspectives on some of the challenges and also opportunities in terms of decarbonising major demands from a London perspective. Just to make clear, Rick is speaking in a personal capacity, which itself, he's an expert in energy systems and therefore not as a voice representing the Greater London Authority. So Matt, we've now gone through all of the four SIF challenges. It's really exciting stuff. Where do you think the biggest opportunities are? So the biggest opportunities are almost 
in the headlines, or should we say the lack of headlines? We know from a risk and resilience perspective that when storms hit or cyber issues occur, they tend to make the press. And what we would hope that these challenges deliver in terms of opportunities is ultimately less headlines to do with the kinds of impacts that we might face from severe storms or cybersecurity issues. And then in terms of the decarbonisation of major demands, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could get into a position where we're less worried about getting these assets in the ground and connected to the network, and ultimately consumers are being able to secure them in the time and at the simplicity that they need to in order to deliver net zero. So I think there's an urgency issue here that we often highlight on the podcast, which is really where the big opportunities lie. Can we expedite delivery of net zero within the UK? And can we turn the UK into this Silicon Valley of energy, which ultimately creates this incredible startup ecosystem to rival the Silicon Valley in the US, where we can see great businesses grow and scale in this country, but delivering great products and services to network users and to consumers to ensure that their lives become much more prosperous from the UK transitioning as the fastest economy in the world to deliver net zero. You know, we do have an amazing opportunity in front of us for creating that, that ecosystem and, and, and really generating the prosperity. I want to go back to a recurring theme in our conversations, which is the interconnected nature of the energy system. I think across all of the four challenges, what we really find is that whilst the focus is an energy system innovation challenge, this is really a cross-societal or cross-infrastructure sectoral issue. In that perspective, what advice do we have for people and companies looking to take part in the SIF? So it's really important that individuals and organisations get in touch with the Innovate UK team if they want to engage with the programme. And the easiest way to do that is simply by emailing sif underscore offgem at iuk.ukri.org. Our team is really here to help both discuss your idea, but also to help you form partnerships with the networks who ultimately may be able to help you to deliver your projects moving forward. So the first thing is get in touch. The other thing is to keep an eye out, not just for the podcast episodes, but also signing up to our newsletter. And the easiest way to do that is simply to go to www.offgem.gov.uk forward slash SIF. And there you'll see a great opportunity to sign up to keep informed. But most importantly, get in touch. Let's have a conversation and see where things could go. So as we record this episode in the autumn of 2022, we can already see that some exciting proposals are coming in for new ideas to tackle the challenges we've talked about in the current discovery phase of the competition. This discovery phase closes soon for applications, but this is a journey of many years, not a one-off and fresh competition rounds start each year. In fact, we've already started thinking about what the round three challenges could look like and are engaging lots of different individuals and organisations around that. The innovation process runs all the time. And by that, we mean the ideation, the incubation and the acceleration of ideas and organisations as part of the programme. So it's really important to join in our ideation process to help keep the flow of new ideas and innovations coming. Please don't be shy. I can't wait to see the best ideas reach business as usual over the coming years. It's a key part of the programme. We love projects 
but we love products and services in the hands of consumers even more. These really help the SIF to make a real difference in speeding up the journey to net zero, like we've said, at lowest cost to consumers, and also turning the UK into the Silicon Valley of energy. We've got a massive opportunity in this country. We just need to work collaboratively and collectively as one strong team to deliver. Manu, as always, thank you so much for your input on the podcast and thanks for all of the incredibly hard work that you and the team have put into this. It's meant a huge amount. Thanks, Matt. No problem. It was great to be a part of it. To find out more about the Strategic Innovation Fund, just head online to offgem.gov.uk forward slash SIF. We've also put that link in the description that accompanies this episode in your podcast player. Brightspark is a bespoken media production for Innovate UK. Thanks for being with us. Look forward to seeing you next time.